Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I never was the kind of person that learned through textbook at school. I didn't learn really going to class. I don't remember anything from college. I mean, I went to American University, the tuition at American University is $40,000 a year today. I don't know, it was way less when I went, I'm 50. But for $160,000 present dollars of a college tuition, I remember literally, I remember specifically one lesson at school. I actually call it the $160,000 lesson, but I don't, I have no- What was the lesson? I was taking an advertising class my senior year and I was at a crossroads in my life. I was either gonna go into the music business, which I love, that was my passion, or I was gonna sell a product called Aunt Franny's Brownies. Cause I had a roommate in college who had an Aunt Franny and every month she sent us this shipment of brownies and I don't know what she put in these brownies, but I was like, they made everybody laugh. I'm like, I can market these brownies. She was ahead of her time. See, and, so in other words, you don't know what she put in these brownies, but it's about to be legal in all 50 right, states. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, I'm like, they don't taste like the brownies I'm getting at the supermarket. <laughs> Uh, no, but in all seriousness, I was like, these are delicious brownies and I'm going to go into the brownie business. I'm going to sell brownies after college. For my final exam in this advertising class, my senior year, we had to create a fictitious brand from scratch, soup to nuts, slogan, advertising, campaign, packaging, jingle, which I was good at, um, and present it to the class. So I'm like, I'm going to use this class as my R&D department. If the professor likes Aunt Franny's brownies and this campaign, I'm gonna roll it out and go into the brownie business. So, you know, I go up there and I start pitching Aunt Franny's brownies and 30 seconds in, the professor says, stop. He goes, son, I wanna know, what is your point of differentiation? And I said, I'm a brownie, I'm moist, I'm delicious, I could be gluten-free if you want me to be gluten-free, I'm home-baked, and he said, no. And he said, and this is the lesson, he said, son, there's a thousand brownies that come out every day. Substitute brownie for restaurateur, 
author, manufacturer, lawyer, whatever you're going to do. There's a thousand of them that come out every day. If you want to be great and make it in this world, you better be a much different brownie than everybody else. Here once again for a return appearance, Jesse Itzler. The last time you were on, Jesse, we talked about living with a seal. We'll talk about that in a second. Now this time you're just, your release date was yesterday, I think, uh, living with the monks. We're going to talk all about that. You spent uh, a bunch of, a couple of weeks living with a bunch of monks. And we're going to talk about that experience. Living with a seal was you had a guy you call seal throughout the book, moves into your house for 30 days and you have to do everything he says while he gets you in shape, how's it going? <laughs> it's going great. Thanks for having me back. See, are you still in shape? You look like you're in shape. Are you still doing like seal level shape? No, I'm like, uh, I'm, I lost a lot, a lot of that. But uh, I still, I love to get back there. I, I don't know if I want to put all that work in right now. That was a lot of work. Like what was, we talked about it already. I encourage people to listen to that podcast again. But I remember he would like wake you up at, at, 4.30 in the morning in the middle of a blizzard and tell you to carry your kid and who was like a babe, practically a baby and like run 10 miles. Yeah. No, I mean, a, a lot of that, a lot of that month that he lived with me and my wife and my 18 month old son at the time was just the unknown. He just bombarded me with the unexpected. And at that time when he came to live with me, I was in a, you know, I was just in a routine and my routine was get up, work out, go to work come home family time and like probably a lot of us. And uh, I was doing that repeat, repeat, repeat. And I just felt like I wasn't getting better. I was so in my routine, I was in a rut. And his march, mar kind of our, our marching orders or his marching order when he came in was, I'm going to get you out of your routine, but you have to do everything I say. And So it wasn't just about physical shape for you. It no. was about somehow... And you talk about this in, in Living with the Monks, uh, taking yourself to an edge somehow. Yeah. So, 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 it, it, and he definitely did that. I'm all, cause I mean, like, I'm always looking for an edge. I'm looking, you know, how could I be a better parent? How could I be a better husband? How could I be, you know, bet, get more sales? How could I run an endurance event faster? I'm always looking for edge. And the traditional way is, you know, um, you know, read books, hire a coach, go to seminars, et cetera. But for me, it's always been stepping into the unknown has been the best way for me to get an edge and doing stuff that's hard. That's been the stuff that gives me long lasting, memorable, in my memory bank edge. I want to address the concept of the edge because I feel like it's almost like when you wrote your first book, it was it was kind of this quasi-experimental way to hit that edge and also, but the, but the focus was also, it seemed to me, getting yourself in shape, getting yourself in this mammoth shape because Seal was such a uh, almost inhuman, inhumanly good shape. Right. Uh, but now you're carving out kind of almost a, a genre for yourself of um, uh, getting into these extreme learning experiences. Let's call them extreme learning or X learning and then writing about it. Like you kind of, it's almost like gonzo learning. You, you, you immerse yourself in an experience where you're going to hit that edge and learn from it. And then you write about it as opposed to just writing one book. Now you're writing, now you've written two, you're writing, you're going to write others, I'm assuming. And this now has become your, not brand is the wrong word, but your, your thing. This is what you're doing. This is what people think of when they think of you. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying it, you know? I never was the kind of person that learned 
through textbook at school. I didn't learn really going to class. I don't remember anything from college. I mean, I went to American University. The tuition at American University is $40,000 a year today. I don't know. It was way less when I went. I'm 50. But for $160,000 present dollars of a college tuition, I remember literally, I remember specifically one lesson at school. I actually call it the $160,000 lesson, but I don't, I have no- What was the lesson? I was taking an advertising class my senior year and I was at a crossroads in my life. I was either gonna go into the music business, which I love, that was my passion, or I was gonna sell a product called Aunt Franny's Brownies. Cause I had a roommate in college who had an Aunt Franny and every month she sent us this shipment of brownies and I don't know what she put in these brownies, but I was like, they made everybody laugh. I'm like, I can market these brownies. She was ahead of her time. In other words, you don't know what she put in these brownies, but it's about to be legal in all 50 states. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And um, I'm like, they don't taste like the brownies I'm getting at the supermarket. <laughs> uh, no, but in all seriousness, I was like, these are delicious brownies and I'm gonna go into the brownie business. I'm gonna sell brownies after college. For my final exam in this advertising class, my senior year, we had to create a fictitious brand from scratch, soup to nuts, slogan, advertising, campaign, packaging, jingle, which I was good at, um, and present it to the class. So I'm like, I'm gonna use this class as my R&D department. If the professor likes Aunt Franny's brownies and this campaign, I'm gonna roll it out and go into the brownie business. So the way our final was, was the way our classroom and the final was kind of situated, there was a hundred people, kids in the class. And the professor said everybody had to hand in their campaign, but he was gonna pick five people out of a class of a hundred at random that had to do an oral presentation of their product, like a state of the union of the industry they're going into, present the campaign or whatever. I'm a senior in college. There's a 5% chance I'm gonna get picked. Like nobody prepared for the oral presentation. You didn't want to get picked. You just wanted to hand it in your thing and go enjoy the summer. So I walk in for the final. He says, all right, I'm going to do this the democratic way. Everybody write down your name. I'll put it into a hat. He literally passed around a hat and I'll pick out the five people that are going to present today their final. Sitting to my right in the classroom was this guy named, we'll just call him Ronnie. And Ronnie was a professional jackass. Ronnie bullied half of this classroom for four years of college. So I took 20 pieces of paper when the professor came around, I wrote Ronnie's name down. And I stuffed it into it. I was like, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie. I overloaded the hat with Ronnie's name. The professor gets all the names and picks out the first name. And sure, this is a true story. The first name that comes up out of the hat is Jesse Itzler. Because the jackass did the same exact thing. Oh my he God. He stuffed like 30 Jesse Itzlers into the hat. So I'm like, you know, I go up there and I start pitching Aunt Franny's brownies. And 30 seconds in for $160,000 of my parents' very hard-earned money, the professor says, stop, 30 seconds in. He was like a Southern guy, and I forgot his name, but he goes, son, I wanna know what is your point of differentiation? And I said, I'm a brownie, I'm moist, I'm delicious, I could be gluten-free if you want me to be gluten-free, I'm home-baked, and he said, no. And he said, and this is the lesson, he said, son, there's a thousand brownies that come out every day, and substitute brownie for restaurateur, author, manufacturer, lawyer, whatever you're gonna do. There's a thousand of them that come out every day. If you wanna be great and make it in this world, you better be a much different brownie than everybody else. And you're just a brownie right now. You can't even be 
This is an important point he's making, I think, because you can't even be 10% better because the average person can't tell the difference between 10% better and the regular brownie. You have to literally be 10 times better, which I don't know if that's possible in brownies. Well, what he taught, what he taught me was, and it's something that here I am 30 years later and I think about it all the time. How am I different? How is my book different? How is my product different? How am I raising my kids different? I mean, we live by a playbook. Well, what if we rip up the playbook? If no one ever taught you, I mean, my wife and I talk about this all the time. And she always tells her employees this. I tell my employees this. If no one taught you how to do your job, how would you do it? You know, because we just hand off the playbook. Here's, here's how we do it. This is how we market this product. We have a launch day. And then you go and you do all this stuff. And like, okay, if you do the same thing that everybody does, you're going to get the same results. It's funny. I mean, I, not to belabor this point, but... I recently tried out for um, an over 40 basketball team that was going to go play in Israel. And there were 15 slots for the uh, open slots. But of the 15 positions on the team, 10 of the guys were returning. So there were really 80 guys trying out for five openings. And I knew that um, I was definitely not one of the better players there. And, And I had to be a brownie. I had to stand out. I had to do something to make myself noticeable. So a month or 60 days before tryouts, they send everybody a suggested training schedule. This is what you should follow to be in shape for camp. And I immediately realized that if I followed this program, I would be in the exact same shape as everybody. But if I doubled the program, I'd be in the best shape of anybody. And that would be my brownie. That's how I would stand out. I wouldn't be the best but I would be the guy that never stops, ever. So I literally, in my driveway, doubled for the 60 days everything they said to do. And I would be exhausted on my driveway. And when we got to the camp for the first scrimmage, I said, okay, I'm gonna guard the best player on the team last year because that will give, they'll have eyes on me. And I got, guarded him nose to nose the entire, I didn't let this guy have one inch. And about four minutes in, he went to his knees and took like some really, really deep breaths. He was gassed. And I said to myself, he wasn't on the driveway. He wasn't on the driveway with me. He didn't do what I did to get here. And I knew at that moment I was going to make the team. And so did you make it? I did make the team. But my point is I made it because I was a different brownie. I ripped up the playbook and I got different results than the other 80 people that went for the tryout. Well, it's interesting because if you look at your whole career, um, you know, there's a a saying that uh, several people on this podcast have said, uh, whether it's entrepreneurs or athletes or musicians, go where it's least crowded. So you've done this. We're we're gonna get to living with the monks because uh, your whole career now with with writing and and these books and these experiences you're having is related to this. But your whole career since like you got out of college is you go to to where it's least crowded. You were one of only two white rappers in the right. early '90s. Now there you lost to Vanilla Ice. Sort of, right? But it's debatable what loss means, but <laughs> um, you know, certainly that wasn't a crowded space at the time. Uh, you know, you 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 then started this uh, company, which nobody I I don't even know. I mean, I know how you came up with the idea of the company. You've written about it a couple of times, but you know, making these kind of almost anthems or, or for for sports teams uh, that was kind of a unique business. There was nobody really. Uh, corporatizing that idea. Right. Uh, then 
the the marquee jets, the 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 air the jet card, private jet card business uh, was a new type of business. It was, a, it was brand new. So it wasn't even that you were trying to be the 10x better brownie. You would go where there was nobody else. Yeah, and same with coconut water. We had to create the category. Right. It didn't exist, and you know um, that presents a tremendous opportunity, but also challenges because you have, there's an education around. You know, people. It, there is and there isn't, but like, like for instance, take the the sports business. Uh, you, 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 people came to you first. You were making money first. You were succeeding first. Yeah. Some sometimes people have an idea and they say, "Oh, can you give me ten million dollars to implement this idea?" Nah, just get a customer first. Then the next customer will come if you're good or not. Yeah, I think the theme for me has always been like, you know, ready, ready, fire, aim. You know, it's been like I, I, I don't. I feel like I don't have enough time to get experience. It just takes so long to get experience. So I've always been like, when I've had an idea, get the advantage of being the first mover in the space. And don't try to write, you know, for me, take years of research and experts and business plans and all that stuff. And I'm, that, I'm not against that, but my, my thing has always been like, get my foot in the door as quickly as I can and figure it out along, along the way. But let's, it is interesting though, because let's dive on that a little bit. This is a chapter in, in your book. One of the things um, you kind of derive from your experience of living with the monks is sort of towards the end of the book. You have a, a section, experience is overrated. And, and, and you're talking about that now. And yet in some things, you know, there's this whole concept that in order to be in the best at something, you have to put in 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. So that's one school of thought of learning and being the best and being the top of your field. On the other hand, there's a lot of evidence, like you're suggesting, that if you look at something with beginner's mind, fresh eyes, that you're going to come up with your own unique ways, maybe what you're doing is you're borrowing from other skill sets where you put in the 10,000 hours and then using the skill sets of other people that you hire or work with. So there's this idea that experience is overrated, but you still have to kind of borrow from the experience of others to really make it happen somehow. I mean, I think the 10,000 hours, I think there, there's a place for 10,000 hours. If you want to be a professional swimmer, you have to put the hours in. You want to be you know, a professional basketball player, you have to put the hours in. If you want to be an entrepreneur, I think sometimes, you know, you, I don't think you need all that. I really don't. And there's plenty of examples of people, uh, mega successful entrepreneurs that didn't go to college, that didn't go to high school or, you know, um, and just did it on creativity, opportunity, breaking the rules, doing it differently, being a brownie. And um, so I think there's a place for both. But uh, I think there's also a lot of people who have lost opportunity trying to Take the time to get ten thousand hours. Well, it's interesting. Um, we oh, I had that idea. Oh, I'm so mad I didn't execute. The, someone else beat me to the punch. Yeah, because you're trying to wait for the right time and have a, the right experience. And very often the timing isn't right. Timing is like a big excuse. Time's never right. And you know, I don't have enough experience. I'm going to spend years doing it, and then once I have the experience, I'll do it. By then, there's four competitors that have that first advantage, first to market advantage. Yeah, no, I I agree and there's um there's a book Smart Cuts by Shane Snow. He's been on this podcast and he talks about the presidency. How if you make if you look at most lists of who the best presidents are, usually people think, "Oh, you have to be in Congress and the Senate, then maybe vice president, then president." But actually, it's the people who have had the least experience who end up becoming the president. Like 
Barack, everybody told Barack Obama in 2008, wait your turn. And he's like, no, nah, I'm just going to do it. Right. And he did it. Right. So he was senator for two years. Dwight Eisenhower had no political experience. Uh, all these, you know, John F. Kennedy had relatively little political experience versus his competitor, competitors, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson and Richard Nixon, who he was running against. They had much more experience than him. Right. So, so it's a it's an interesting thing that the sometimes kind of having that hunger is what will get you to figure out where to borrow the hours from and how to take not necessarily a shortcut, but a, a smart way to learn something to to be able to do what like again, we'll get to living with a, a seal. You're like, okay, I'm I'm not gonna by myself get in as good a shape as this guy seal. So let's bring him into my house for 30 days and then I'm going to get good. And by the way, that experience is weird enough that it could be a book. Yeah. And that type of book is interesting enough and unique enough. It could be a series of books. Yeah. And it comes back to what you said in the beginning of our talk about edge, you know, and I look back on my life and I think about the most impactful thing I think that probably ever happened to me other than choosing who I was, you know, the, the person that I married um, was I ran this hundred mile run nonstop and I did it for charity and I, I gave myself 30 days to train, uh, 90 days to train for it. And, uh, it was my, it became an obsession. It became my lifestyle for those 90 days to, to run this race. And I didn't know what the lessons would be at the time. To me, it was just, I'm running this to complete this. And this is my goal. And I want to hit this goal and nothing's going to stop me, you know, from hitting this goal, that kind of mentality, obviously. But here we are, it's been almost, what, 10, 15 years later since I ran that race and the benefits still are so significant. And um, it's something that I can always tap into. The experience with SEAL, the experience with the monks, these are just things that I call on your, are part of your, what I call your life resume, you know? And we put so much emphasis on our work resume, which is important. But if we turn the model upside down and we focus on our life resume and these moments and we're aware of the moments when they happen and we take inventory on them and we build those on, on those different experiences, to me, that body of work is so equal, if not more important than your traditional resume. Absolutely. No one, no, after a certain period, for instance, no one's going to ask you where you went to college, but they're going to say, you live you let a seal move into your house and you did whatever he said for 30 days to get in shape or you lived with these monks for, you know, a couple weeks and and did all these things to get this experience. And uh, uh, it's those experiences that are a little bit outside. Like you say, they're on the edge. If you're too far out on the edge, people say you're just crazy. But if you're right on the edge, people don't know. <laughs> And then, and then, but they respect what you did and they want to learn from it. And, and they always say, what I've noticed with my own experiences in this, they always say, man, you know, I wish I could have done that, but X, Y, Z are the reasons why I couldn't do it. Definitely. And what often what happens when you put yourself in those situations, the real gems, the real life lessons, the real nuggets, they don't come in the direction you think they're going to come. They don't come in the way you think they're going to come. For example, I just took my son who's eight uh, and my friend who's a police officer in Suffolk County brought his daughter who's the same age. And we hiked Mount Washington in the winter. Mount Washington is one of the 10 most dangerous mountains to climb. It's minus 
you know, on any given day, minus 10, 20 degrees, winds blow at 50 to 100 miles an hour, et cetera. And my 275 son, miles per hour. That's, that's, the, the yeah, that's the record is recorded there. And we took these two kids and we camped out outside at night in a minus 40 sleeping bag um, with my son and, and, and my friend and, and his daughter. And we went up there and I was like, man, my son's gonna, I'm gonna learn all this about, this is a survival thing and I'm gonna become this survival adventure guy, whatever. But what happened was when we got up there, I said to Kevin, the cop, who I call him Kevin, the cop, I said, Kevin, how often do you take trips like this? And he said, uh, and this is a guy who you know works super hard. I, I assume doesn't come from or have a tremendous amount of, of money. One of the happiest guys that I know. And just, he's always happy. What we all want, you know? I said, how many of these trips do you take? And he said, you know, it's interesting. I take one a year with my college roommates. I've been doing it since I'm 22 years old. Every year we get together. And then every other month I take a trip, whether it's to run a marathon, go hiking, go kayaking, whatever. I mean, nothing that costs a lot of money with myself or my family or a friend. So I'm like thinking to myself, if I can't take one weekend, every other month, every eight weeks for myself to, or with my family or with my wife or whatever, if I can't carve out one weekend, every eight weekends, like how out of balance is my life? So, well, I, so I called it the Kevin rule. So I went on this hike thinking I'm gonna get all this stuff, but all of a sudden that was a huge takeaway for me and a gigantic shift in kind of one of the rules on how I wanna live my life, the Kevin rule, you know? You don't know where the lessons come from unless you put yourself in the position to experience them. It's like I always say at work, you gotta put, I didn't get lucky. I put myself in a position to, for the luck to happen. I think I think that's critical. There's, and, and there's actually a couple of different directions I wanna go on this Mount Washington experience. I always tell people we're gonna get to the book because there's so many things Whatever. in the book. But the, with the Mount Washington experience, the first time you tried to climb it, um, you stopped with a quarter mile left to the top. And I think, uh, let me turn this off. By the way, mistakes are always welcome on the podcast. Perfect. Um, you stopped the first time a quarter mile from the top and you went back because you correctly realized, okay, I did a ready fire aim right? and maybe I need to recalibrate. Uh, I, think that's the, I think that's a key lesson of ready fire aim is that there's sort of in parentheses and not be stupid <laughs> because you have to be able to, to, to fail and go back and then ready, fire, aim again. I think so, too many people do ready, aim, fire. And like you say, they're too late in many cases, like, oh, okay, 20 other people did this before me. But if you're doing ready, fire, aim, you have to be able to say, okay, I know I'm only a quarter mile from the top. I can make it, but I'm going to go back and try again next weekend. Yep. And that's part of the ready, fire, aim philosophy and part of the edge philosophies. You don't know what's at the edge because it's the edge. Correct, correct. And the other part of that I would say is that, you know, um, the goal doesn't change. The goal was to get to the summit of Mount Washington. The script changes, how you get there mm. changes, but the goal remained the same. So when we didn't get there, the goal didn't go away because we failed. Okay, we failed. We got to go back. We got to go back. We'll go back nine times. We got to get to the top. I got to see what this damn top of this mountain that everyone's talking about looks like. So the goal never changes. It's just the course to get there changes. And I think that was a really powerful lesson for me. And when you marry that with urgency, ur I mean, we live in a world where urgency is just so important, at least 
you know, I believe it is. Wait, because um, Sarah told you, your your wife told you, oh, so you'll try again another uh, year? Yeah. And we, you're like, no, next Saturday. <laughs> yeah, we went up and and I got back and every everybody knew I was trying to get to the summit in Mount Washington and people were texting me and I'm like, I, you know, we didn't make it. And people were like, you failed? It's only four, it's only a four and a half mile climb, you know, but it's the, it's the conditions and the weather that's the real issue and the visibility and the wind. And um, I'm like, no, I didn't make it. And I, I said to Sarah, you know, I failed. And she said, well, sweetie, get a tour guide that can help you navigate. You, you don't even know what you're doing. Get a tour guide, go back next winter, break in your boots, et cetera. And I was like, next winter? I'm going back on Saturday. And I flew back to New Hampshire and I went back on, because there's no guarantee what next winter looks like. I mean, next, well, yeah. Although although look at the experiences of you and, and Sarah. So Sarah Blakely, your wife, started Spanx. She was very good at having an incredibly unique idea, but then doing aspects of it were ready, fire, aim. Like she got the Neiman Marcus deal before she figured out the manufacturing. So that was very much ready, fire, aim. But she really planned out the product for many years she did. while selling fax machines. Like she did an extreme ready, aim, fire until the right moment. And then she was like, okay, now ready, I'm getting the Neiman Marcus deal or whatever deal it was and uh, uh, and then figuring out the manufacturing. She was ready, 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 aim, fire. Right. She, you know, she obsessed on the product and when she was, which rightfully so, and she, um, was very careful about releasing anything until it was exactly the way she wanted it. And um, she had a different approach and it worked It worked for her. I'm wired differently. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I'm an action freak, um, you know, and I'm gonna get my foot in the door and figure it out. And she's not. So she, for her, that was the right, everybody has their own strategies. You have to try different things to see what works best for you. And you know her style for her is is, is perfect, and uh, and my style for me is suited me well. So so in in marriage, do you think I don't think you two are necessarily opposites? Like you're both willing to hit you know go where it's least crowded and and hit that edge in your own ways. But do you think it's more uh, similarities attract or opposites attract? Because there's aspects, and you can see in the banter in the book, there's aspect, aspects yeah. where you're, you're opposites, but I see there's a lot of similarities too. There's, we have very similar va- values on our friends, our family, our relationship with time, et cetera. And the areas where we're very different, and there's a lot of them, add for newness and adventure and excitement. So I think that's a really good, good mix. Uh, but the values, our core values are are very similar. And you know, you talk about your relationship with time. This comes up a lot in the book, living with monks, living with the monks. It seems like you go through this math quite a bit where, okay, I'll have, you know, I'm, I'm making this example up, but I'll have uh, 20 more. I visit my parents. Someone could do this in us. I visit my parents every summer. I have maybe 20 more summers with them. Uh, that means I might only see them let's say 18 more times, if I see them 18 out of those 20 right. summers, I better make sure out of those 18 times, because it's only 18, that each one is you know, the maximum enjoyment visit I can have. So you do that kind of math quite a bit, where you, you break it down. How many times will I have to enjoy X kind of experience? Like you know, playing with my son or 
like hiking this mountain while I'm still in good shape or uh, writing these books or doing whatever. It seems like that kind of math you do, you do, you, you have a mind for it. Because it makes me super present, you know, be, and it, it, what's, what's a concrete example? Because I just made a, up an a example. A concrete example is, um, are your parents alive? Uh, one of them is, yes. And how old is, is your mom or your dad? Uh, my mom's 77. And where does she live? New Jersey. Okay. And how often do you see her? Uh, not as often as I should. A couple times a year? Yeah. Or? So let's say, you, let's say so you said she's how old? 77. Okay. So the average American lives to be 78, but let's say your mom lives, you know, another knock on wood, she lives longer, but let's say she lives five years. Most people would say I have five more years with my mom, but if you only see your mom twice a year, you don't have five years with her. You have 10 visits with her. Right, so each visit's a 10% of the time I will see her. Correct. And if she lives to be 78 and you see her twice a year, then you have two visits with her. It's not, you don't have 365 days. You don't see her 365 right. days. You see her two days. So when you, like, you have to, I love reverse engineering the rest of my life. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, 
national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, You're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Yeah, so like, what's an example in your life that you've used? And you've, you have a ton of examples in the book, but well, my, it's but it's such a formula for you. It's when I reverse engineered my parents, and my parents are both in their late eighties, and I realized that I only see them a couple of times a year. That's unacceptable to me. So I can either accept that I only see them twice a year, or I could say I want to see them every month. And when I'm with them, that time is incredibly more valuable because I recognize how precious it is as a percentage of the time that I have left with them. I can give a million examples. That's the most obvious and real one that comes to mind. But again, let's use the number 78. Let's use that as a magic number because it's a fact. And you know that number changes once you hit 50 and if your parents are alive. But in simplest terms, the average American lives to be 78 years old, which by the way, we're lucky because if we were born 100 years ago, the average age is 45. So we're going to live almost twice as long uh, as... Maybe our parent, as you know, a generation before our parents, uh, just because of when we were born. Mm. But when you take the number seventy-eight and you say, "Okay, I'm turning fifty, you're fifty, you only have twenty-eight summers left," if that was the case, 
the only thing that goes that you think about when, or at least I do, is man, who do I want to? How do I want to spend that time, and who do I want to spend it with? How do I want to spend that time, and who do I want to spend it with? And I want to put as much stuff on my plate of the things I love to do with the people I love to do them with as possible. Period. And if if you look at the four key buckets of your life, so like, you know, uh, your wellness your family, your business, and relationships slash causes that are important to you, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're spending a lot of time on things outside of those four core areas, to me, it's a distraction. It's nothing but a distraction. Well, okay, but uh, are you also include? where do you put your creativity? Because that's obviously a big part of your life. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, and, and creativity goes falls a little bit into wellness. I mean, for me, it's wellness right. is just physical, okay. it's, but- um, but my point is, I'm very aware of that time element, and I don't want to waste it, you know. And so when I'm having big moments, I'm aware of, I become aware of them, and I go back to the Kevin rule. Right. Well, the Kevin rule is part of that kind of formula. It's part of the formula, and that's kind of like how do you reverse engineer? Because listen, when I when I hiked Mount Washington, I didn't see any seventy year olds on on the on the mountain. I didn't see really any sixty five year olds. On the mountain. If I like to do that, I can't wait till next summer. Then, when Sarah goes next winter, when Sarah said go go next winter, no, I'm 50, man. Like those, those there's only there's a short win margin of error in that time frame. Do you think turning 50 was a moment for you? Where yes, I think there's not a day that goes by where my head hits the pillow when I'm don't say to myself, did I maximize the day? And I, I'm not just saying that. It's not. A marketing thing that's like, ask my wife. Like I talk about it all the time. I say to Sarah all the time, think about this moment right now. Both your parents are alive. The kids are healthy. We're, you know, knock on wood on everything. How does it get better? Like you appreciate this right now. I I think that, you know, I, so I just turned 50. This is probably the only important birthday I've ever had. It's the only one where it actually really caused me to think philosophically. And I remember I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently, much younger, and she was throwing a party and and she was asking me who she should invite. And um, she said, well, I don't really like these people, but I feel bad if I don't invite them. And I said, one way to think about it is if this person was the only person to show up at the party, would you be happy that they were the only person to show up? And she'd be like, no, it would be horrible. The party would be ruined if they were the only person to show up. Then don't invite them. Like every component in your life has to ha, has to be maximized at this point. But you, I think when you're younger, you don't see that. At 50, I'm not saying, I feel like patronizing, like, oh, these young 30-year-olds. But like you sort of see that at 50, like every single moment and every single person you're around has to be, this is the right person I want to be with right now. Yep. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I think... Uh, just being aware of it. I mean, I, 50 became, I didn't think 50 would have an impact on me. And I feel like, I mean, how old do you feel? How old do you feel? I feel the best I've ever felt in my life, to be honest. You feel like you're in your 30s? I, I, I remember in my 20s playing basketball and like being tired in three minutes. And now I could play for as long as I want. Like, uh, not that I'm in such great shape, but I just, I feel like in my best shape for some reason. Right. I don't know why. That's good. No, I think because- I've been eating healthier. I've been just I've been aware of my age the past few years, so I've just been doing everything healthier. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm, you know, it's had a big impact on me and to the fact that, you know, 30 years out 
we're going to be 80 is, and it goes like that. And the 70s, you can't do in your 70s what you can do in your 40s and 50s. I mean, I hope we, we can, but um, so the time is precious and it creates a lot of urgency. It also gets a lot of uh, over, helps you deal with any kind of fear of taking risk or whatever. I mean, like I look around and I'm like, I'm walking the streets of New York today, coming up to meet you. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, got a book coming out. People are going to review it. I'm vulnerable. I'm doing podcasts. There's social media. There's this, there's this, all this stuff that makes everybody very vulnerable. And I'm thinking to myself, nobody on the street that I'm looking at right now is going to be around in a hundred years. Nobody. Right. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing too about legacy. Like take, uh, you know, world famous author, Philip Roth just passed away this past week. Great writers were in like, God knows how many novels was always considered a contender for the Nobel Prize in literature. A hundred years from now, probably no one will even know he ever existed. Exactly. And so I always wonder about, because you mentioned legacy a little bit, like what's the importance of legacy in your life, if at all? I mean, I think about it all, this is so funny. These are the things, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the age that, that you start to think about this kind of stuff. But I do, I think about my grandma who lived and I knew, you know, passed away when I was 13. Um, she lived her entire life with I'm sure the same worries that we all have. She felt overwhelmed. She had to pay bills. She had kids that she was worried about how she raises her kids. She got fired. She had to get a new job. I mean, everything that we all go through in our life and had major stress, I'm sure. Probably spent some nights staying up at night thinking about it. But here we are and she's been, she passed away 10, 20 years ago. There's not one person on the planet outside of my immediate family that thinks about her or cares about it. She lived this entire life. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like onto the Steve Jobs. I mean, changed the world. And it's like, okay. You, you know, so when I when I think about legacy, when I think about no one's gonna be around that I'm looking at in a hundred years most likely, the fear goes away. Why wouldn't I put the book out? Why wouldn't I take the chat? Why wouldn't I go for the job interview? Why wouldn't I you know, why can't I go out on stage in the play? Why can't I perform comedy in front of people? I mean, it, it, it has to go away on some level because at the end of the day, in mm. the scheme of the universe, you know, look at the, the time that we're here. We have to maximize it. But so, on the one end, you can say, uh, why should I spend all this time amassing achievements when no one's going to know about them 100 years ago? But on the other hand, you could say, oh, well, I want to do it because... I love doing it. This is just for me, not for uh, the legacy 100 years from now. Right. I don't look at them as anything as achievements. I don't look at anything in my life as achievements. I look at them as experiences mm. and some work, some don't, but those, those experiences for me that I put on my plate, they make me feel alive. You know, They make me feel alive. I don't feel incredibly alive. I'm, I watch TV, I watch sports, I watch shows, but that doesn't make me feel alive. I might enjoy it, but it's not the same feeling of climbing a mountain or taking a risk or starting a business or those challenges make me feel alive. Well, also when you when you look at the math of these types of things, like classic example is, let's say the average person now spends two to three hours a day looking at Instagram and Facebook. And then you add that up, that's you know uh, 700 or 800 hours a year. And then over the next you know 30 years that will be alive, that's 24,000 hours. 
That's an enormous amount of time you spend just wasting time. Yeah, it's like two years. Yeah. That's two full years of time. Two full years, including sleeping. Correct. So it's probably so it's it's really, like, it's the equivalent of like almost four, uh, almost three years. Right? Of, of um, like doing nothing but doing, going on, in, liking things on Inst like cat videos on Instagram. It's true. And it's like, it's like I, uh, I was talking to someone the other day and they were telling me um, <laughs> it, it would take me a hundred, I've never, this guy was saying to me, I've never watched Game of Thrones. It would take me 180 hours now to catch up on G Game of Thrones, but in 65 hours, I can get a pilot's license. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I love that. Listen, you, all this talk about time and this and that, I think for me, I look, when I look at my, what's my enemy? I mean, I want to stay healthy for my kids, you know, that's a goal of mine. And so that's one thing, you know, that's super important. And then the other thing is my enemy is the clock. There's so much that I want to do. We have so much opportunity. My enemy is the clock, man. I don't want, I want to get it all in before the clock runs out. Just for your own, like these are the things you want to do. I have the opportunity. I'm alive, man. I feel right. fucking alive. Like I'm living and I feel like there's a lot that I want to do. And, and um, my fear is that I just, I can't do it all. So, so even in this country alone, you know, I'm flying over, I flew cross country the day. I'm looking over the mountains. I'm looking at the landscape and I'm thinking there's so many things I haven't seen or done. And you're talking about achievement. Are you kidding me? There's so much that I want to do. And uh, my enemy is the clock. Yeah, because it's not just, I mean, you have to have high quality of life too. You have to be healthy, you know, money helps a little bit. Not completely. Like you mentioned, Kevin, you don't necessarily know if he has a lot of money or not, but he takes these trips every eight weekends or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so money isn't the limiting factor. It's really health and not being bogged down by negative habits like, uh, oh, it's just scrolling on Instagram or binge watching on Netflix or whatever. But then I think also you've created for yourself now uh, a structure by which you could experience these things and kind of report back from the edge. So now you have this second book. I think the second book is really important, not just in terms of the subject, but because now it sets up third, fourth, fifth book. It sets up a way you can do these experiences and then and and then um, understand them and process them and write about them. Because when you write about them, that's when you're. It's like you're experiencing them again, and you're able to sort of process what you learned again and and really think about it. So living with the monks, uh, it's it's a similar. I'm going to call it a similar um, agenda almost as living with seal. You're getting yourself healthy in a certain way that's at an edge. So maybe how did you, you know, I, I hate to ask the classic question, but I have to ask it, which is how, do you, how did you decide to do living with the monks? Well, I feel like I did this, the physical side with seal and I wanted to, to explore the spiritual side and monks, I didn't know much about monks or monasticism or anything. Uh, so, but I, I knew that they were perceived to be the masters and um, I wanted to go into the unknown. And this is part of my life resume. You know, what an amazing experience to be able to go to a monastery and kind of report back to those, you know, I don't expect anyone to go live in a monastery, but I did it for you. And, and how could I pull some of the wisdom of this 1500 year old tr tradition and apply it to my hectic and modern life? And so I decided to go live on a monastery. And, uh, and again, it's like, I'm going to say it's, uh, like living with a seal in the sense that you want to do something that you, the way you described it was you wanted to break the routine. I wanted to get better. You know, I it goes back to edge. I wanted to get better and I wanted to just be a better dad, be a better husband, 
live my life better. And that's what led me to SEAL ultimately. Like, you know, I didn't plan on writing a book about it. It just, it happened organically. He came and lived with me and I'm like, wow, I got, I want to, this should be cool to share with people. And this, this time it would, you know, the same kind of hunger for getting better and, and having experience led me to the monastery. And I went with no expectations. I went, I lived with eight monks, four of which have been on the monastery for 50 years. Uh, I detached from my phone. I detached from everything. My family, I spoke to my wife once from a landline and, um, and I went up there really with no expectations other than let me experience it and see what comes of it. And again, I just, as I was reading it, I was thinking this is another example of ready, fire, aim. First off, you didn't know what kind of monks they were when you got to the door. Like you thought, I think maybe you thought they were Buddhist monks. Like, you know, you, you write about Thich Nhat Hanh, um, and and his monastery, who's a, you know, he's a Buddhist monk. Uh, these were, I guess, uh Orthodox Christian monks, yes. and uh, you know the other thing is there are there are silent retreats out there. Like there's vipassanas that you must have researched at some point. There's all these kind of you know either yogic or Buddhist type of monasteries you can go to or retreats where you can do these you know silent vows for a week or two. You just you found this one place and you did it. How much of it? How much of having these experiences is the lack of planning part of the adventure. <laughs> a lot of it, a lot of it. Like uh, you get the, you're, you said you're an adrenaline junkie. Is part of the adrenaline not planning? And part of it's not planning, part of it's the unknown, part of it's not talking myself out of it because, you mm -hmm. know, over time, time kills all deals. Because so you researched taking that on and that convinced you not to do it. <laughs> right, if I would have really researched this, I probably like, first of all, to, to keep the lights on at the monastery, the monks breed German shepherds. So there were 11 German shepherds, eight monks and me. And they trained, they're world renowned dog trainers. So every week new dogs were coming in that they were training. I'm not really a dog guy. I like dogs, but I don't super click with dogs. It's not like they run over to me. We're in a room with eight, nine people here. I'd probably be the last one they'd sniff. Um, so you're so, lucky, like I just to interrupt, I hate dogs. And I, every room I'm in with a dog, I'm the first one. They, they sense that it's like, it's like I'm negging them in a bar and they like jump on me and want me to like them. And I'm, anyway, I'm, it's a whole other thing. I'm trying to avoid getting a dog right now. Okay. It's another All right. story. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like they, we should talk about that. So, <laughs> um, no, so I think if I would have researched it, I might have said, oh, I don't know. You know, so it was just better off for me to just go and experience and, and not have any pre preconceived you know ideas of what it was going to be because that could lead to disappointment i just went like with the mind of i'm going to go experience this i want to live in the culture and i want to see you know where those where those nuggets of treasures and wisdom or lessons lie and you had no expectations on what that wisdom would be no i mean a silent retreat i've read about people that have gone to silent retreats and they tell i've heard about it and i just felt like um that's not what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for religion. I wasn't looking for silence. I was looking for experience. And uh, again, one more thing I could put on my resume. And, uh, and I was gonna see like, what does it feel like to detach for 15 days? You know, and, and um, I'm super attached to my phone and I, I, get very I get distracted very easily. I have four kids, work, wife, parents are getting older. You know, same thing that everybody, same challenges as everybody has. 
And that was leading to a lot of distraction. I felt like I was losing my superpower, which is my intuition. I've relied, you know, you get a 900 on, you don't know about this, but when you get a 900 on your SAT, you got to rely on instinct and gut. Um, and are, that, are, I feel like that was almost a- uh, It's a compliment. I know, but- but based on my looks, <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. I have glasses and curly hair, so you must have gotten a sixteen hundred on your SATs. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, I know it's you. True. You went to a good school, <laughs> did you? The close. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. 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 I didn't want to say anything, but you know, first impressions. You know, um, that's hilarious. Well, I didn't. I got half of that. I got it. You doubled me. You two X'd me. Um, so I've relied on my my gut. You know, and uh, I was losing it. That that superpower. How did you sense you were losing it? I just wasn't making decisions that I, decisions that I made in the past. Not bad decisions. I wasn't making bad decisions like doing anything you know nuts. But little things that in the past would like lead me in the right direction, where that voice wasn't talking to me anymore. Do you have? Is there like a specific People. example? You, you don't really mention a specific example in the book. Is there like one that you People. like? People what? like the, like business decisions like in the past. Be like ah. I would be able to read people very well and be like, my, my spider senses are telling me to stay away from this. And I was making those decisions and I wasn't honoring myself and I just wasn't, um, my, my gut with like how to raise my, just everything, really, honestly. Because how could you, when you, unless you spend time alone, and my form of meditation has been running. I run alone with no music. I've ran an hour a day for the last 20 something years, 25 years probably, you know? thousands and thousands of hours alone. But unless you spend that time alone, uh, it's very hard to be in, t- in tune with your gut. I rely on Siri now. I ask Alexa my questions. I go to Google. I can get anything at any point by ask by pushing a button and asking. And I'm bombarded by information. I'm bombarded with texts. I get real time. I can see news unfolding in schools and this and that and watch it like I'm there, you know? And all of that is has there's some positive to some positive to that, but for me the negative was gut, and I felt like you know let me see what I miss, what don't I miss if I go away, like what's going on? Let me take some inventory, man, you know, and see like let me look inside me, and let me just get forced to think. I don't like thinking is a lost art form. I don't even spend time to think. You know, my wife had to set up a fake commute. She, we live two miles from her office. It's a four mile, uh, four minute car ride. She takes a 40 minute car ride just so she can think. And I'm like, that's brilliant, you know? So let me take 15 days to think. And what happened when I, when I went and I spent time alone is the things that were most important to me rose to the surface. And the things that I, you know, when I came home, everyone said to me, well, what'd you miss the most? What'd you miss the most? But not one person asked me, what didn't you miss? And when I look at my life hmm. and I think about time and how I spend my time, what I, I didn't miss a lot of the things that I spend a lot of time on. I'm a to-do list, to-do list nut. I mean, my to-do list is like, I write everything down, to-do list, to-do list. And it's super overwhelming, you know? And when I got to the monastery on day five, I'm like, if my to-do list blew away in a hurricane, life goes on. Like yeah. I'll survive it. It's it's really interesting because people there's so much advice about to do lists, and I I I never do to do lists because I feel if something's important, I'm just gonna do it. You're gonna do it. Like right now, if something happens that okay, you have to do this. Okay, that's and if I really decide this is what I have to do, that's what I'll do. 
I don't need a to-do list to tell me. I'll know what's the priority thing for right now. Yeah, the monks just had do lists. Like this is my, they had a chore in the morning. They, they didn't move to the next task until the task at hand was fully done. So like my to-do list, if I get to 75%, I feel great. I can cross it off my list and I feel great. It's very, you know, it's, it, it, that's an amazing feeling. when you It's get a to dopamine do it. hit. Yeah, like you get to cross something off. The monk, there was no time limit. The monks, there is no time. Time doesn't exist. So they could take their time until it's done with 100% effort. And I, you'll appreciate this. I remember that one day there was, they had a retreat at the monastery. So they had hundreds of people come up for a weekend retreat. And after the treat, they said, Jesse, you're going to clean the dishes, which I was happy to do. And I went in there and they bring in a hundred dishes and then they, and I start cleaning them. And then they brought in more dishes and more dishes. And I'm looking over, there's like 500 dishes. And I said to one of the monks, I said, this is going to take me forever. Like, how am I going to clean all of these dishes? And he said to me, you don't have to clean all those dishes. You just have to clean the one that's in your hand. Huh. And... I was like, wow, you know, and I, once I realized that, it put my feet back on the ground of where I was and okay, let me just go and one at a time and focus on what I'm doing, Jesse. Don't focus on the 500, focus on the one. And, you know, they perfected monotasking. I thought that I was taught to multitask, you know, and they reversed that thinking and they, they, they're monotaskers and they do it with precision and, effort and love. And it was just a whole different way of watching people go through life. And it was amazing. So, so, um, there was also an interesting thing where you had, you go in there and you're meeting just a small group of characters and you're going to be spending a lot of time with them, you know, kind of contemplating and at dinners and being silent and praying and whatever. And then there was the intern, Lenny. (laughs) Oh my God. And you didn't know what to think of him, whether he was like a, a serial killer in the beginning or, or you weren't sure, you had no idea. But then you, you, um, your judgments were all kind of turned upside down about him by the end. Right. When I got Which there- Which kind of, by the way, just artistically, gave an interesting arc too to, uh, you know, ultimately our experiences are about our relationships with others in many cases. Yeah. No, you're right. I showed up and and again, I had no expectation. I just first of all, I thought there were going to be 100 monks. I thought monastery equals like village, not eight monks, but there were eight monks, 11 German shepherds and an intern named Lenny. And Lenny and I did not click at all in the beginning. Um Was Len- he hostile to you though? Like you said at one time you brushed past him and yeah. you thought he was like He just gave off like you know, if I was a dog, he would make my hair stand up. I mean, he just like, he gave off an energy of this is, I'm the intern on this monastery. You know, this monastery isn't big enough for two interns. And I'm like, I'm not even a fucking intern, buddy. I'm just like, what are you talking about? But he threw that like vibe off. And um, the minute I walked in, he was like, he looked at me and he was, he was pissed off that I was there. And um, so I, you know, I tried to ignore him, but he made... He just made it a point to, um, you know, to to kind of make make. He he sent like he he sent a smoke. He took a shot over the base. He just let me know, you know, that uh, this is his turf kind of thing, which was really odd. I mean, we're in a peaceful place, and uh, but he he was an intern that bounced around from community to community. He just came off an Indian reservation huh. for six months, 
you know, I just came out of Buckhead, Atlanta. You know, like I just kind of, I just came off Delta first class. He just came off an Indian reservation for six months and like he, it just didn't work. And we were forced into all these situations. They almost like put us in these chores. Because what's interesting about a monastery is, at least where I was, there are four or five hours of silence, prayer, meditation, reflection a day. Uh, but the other time, we're working. It's manual labor. We got to keep the lights on at the monastery. So the way they made their money was, again, they bred German shepherds. They trained dogs. They had a, a cheese-smoking factory and that you know, we had to clean the church, and there was all the dishes. I mean, there's no housekeepers didn't come in. But again, it's part of the almost spiritual experience. Like it is. Let's say you. Let's say they said to you, "Don't worry, Jesse. You're just visiting. You could just sit in your room. We'll do all the work." It would have been a totally different experience for you. Yes, it would have been not as uh, not a spiritual experience. Like the the dish lesson is a very Zen type of lesson. Like to be focused on this present moment and what you're doing, and it's a hard activity. If it's whether it's unpleasant or not, extract the beauty from it. I think day one it was a Zen experience, and then day two it was like they realized, wow, this guy cleans the dishes. We don't have to clean the dishes. <laughs> I became the dishwasher. Dishes. For the, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, look, and that's what I signed up for. And the first couple of days, I resisted it. I was like, you know what? This, I'm going home. I'm going home. Five days. I'm out of here. You know, that's enough time. I can reap the benefits in five days, even though I signed up for 15. And that's the way my flights were bookended and the, the you know, transportation and everything. Um, but I was like, I just can't stay here. Time's going so slowly. I'm so bored. I have no one to talk to. I, I'm dying to know what's going on in the world. Like, what are my kids doing? I mean, I was just isolated. And I just, it went so slowly. I would look at my my watch and I would be like, that's only an hour has passed. I'm like, it feels like it's went, you know, four days have gone by. And I started making excuses in my head. Like I started giving myself an out. When's, you know, five days is enough. Five days is plenty of time. And I was planning a seat. I was rationalizing. I was already kind of justifying how I could go home early. And I realized that there's a lot of places in my life where I'm negotiating my goals or I'm rationalizing, I'm creating an environment, like I'm giving myself an out. And what, I realized- Like where else? Uh, well, just with my kids the other day, I sent my son went to summer camp and he really didn't want to go. And I said to him, well, just go for a day or two. And if you don't like it, you know, we'll, we don't have to go, you know, that kind of thing. And it was the worst, it was a terrible parenting move because I planted a seed in his head. I was already mm. allowing him to go in there and, and not like it. I was teeing him up to not like it. I was giving him an out. It was just bad on so many levels. Did he did he call you in two days and say, get me out of here? No, I mean, uh, we're on day two now. All right, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But, um, but I, you know, in, 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 in even take marriage. I mean, I think a lot of people say, I can always get separated. I can just get a divorce. You know, once you take divorce off the table, relationship in your, your re relationship in your marriage gets way stronger. How do you- how do you? It's not an option, James. It's right. not an option. I'm finishing the race. I'm climbing the mountain. I'm not getting divorced. Like, you burn the boat. You know, you burn the boats. And um, I struggled with that at the monastery because I gave myself an out right away. Day five, I'm out of here. And once I got to day five, and I'm like, you know what? No, I'm here for 15 days. I'm here. There are no excuses. You know, um, I want to be proud of myself. When I for staying, and by the way, when I left the monastery and I got picked up and I got in the car, and um, 
the gentleman that picked me up asked me how I felt. I said, I've been here for 15 days. He said, how do you feel? And my answer was proud. Proud that I got through the challenge. It was hard, man, of being there. And I realized like, man, I want to do things in my life that make me proud of who I am and me, you know? And um, by the way, in, in the writing, you know, it's sort of like you describe, you know, there are some before scenes and there are some after scenes. And it, and obviously in the before scenes, it seemed like you were getting a lot, a lot more annoyed at details and you were observing details. Like, I don't know, I don't remember if like if an Uber is late or whatever. And then, and then in your observations after, you were noticing th- a lot more things about people, I felt. Yeah as opposed to details and objects. You're noticing a lot more things about the interactions between people. Why do you think that was? It's a really good question. Uh, I just think I became more present. You know, I think I became way more present. I don't, you can see, I don't have my phone on the table right now. I don't, you know, I'm still on my phone, but at home, I try not to have my phone at dinner. I don't bring it to movies. I don't keep it in my room at night. Do you read the newspaper at all? I know you did in the in the book. You had the guy sneak a, a post to you. But other than for the sports news, do you, do you find any value in the newspaper? I find tremendous value in the newspaper. And um, I would give myself an F. I go in and out of periods of time where I read the newspaper cover to cover, three probably three a day. And But I'm not in that zone right now. But, but yeah, let me ask you. Like, I don't read the newspaper at all, yeah. ever. And I haven't probably in about 10 years. What value do you find in the newspaper? Like, what, what, if you don't read the newspaper, what do you, what do you not know? Uh, well, no, it's not about not knowing or knowing. It just makes me feel connected uh, to what's going on in this country specifically. Okay. It makes me feel... But you al- feel you wouldn't know what's going on in this country without the newspaper? Because everyone's read, talking about it. When you read like the USA Today, you get a different perspective of things in the Midwest and things all over. You, know, yeah. you get a different perspective when you read the Wall Street Journal and you get a different perspective when you read the New York Times. And um, Yeah, I do. I think it makes me a little bit more current. I like to know transactions in the business world. I like to know, uh, you know, just... Yes, I think there's there's value, tremendous value. Because there's math there too, in the sense that okay, if you're going to spend two hours a day being inf- informed about what's going on in the world, that adds up as well. It does, but 24 hours is a really long time. You know, if you don't believe me, go run for 24 hours straight. You can cover a lot of territory in 24 hours if you keep moving. 24 hours in a day, you can get a shitload done in 24 hours if you don't dilly dally. So we were talking about two hours to read the paper and some of these conversations that we've had to, during this talk about time with your kids and doing this. And even, even the two hours that you take on Instagram, it's okay if you, if you eliminate a lot of the non-essential stuff that doesn't go into those four buckets that I talked about, family, wellness, relationships, purpose, et cetera. 24 hours is a long day. Not if you watch three hours of, of uh, you know, the Kardashians and, and, uh, and a football game, then you've taken 25% of your day for that. But if you eliminate that and you free up the hours, let me put it this way. And I mentioned this in the book. I calculated that at the pace that I was, I watched a lot of football in my 30s. I would watch the Sunday night game, the Sunday two, uh, college football game, Saturday, Sunday football, I'm in the fantasy league, Sunday night football, Monday night football, Thursday football. I'm like, it's a football game. So I'm watching a three-hour game. I calculated that if I lived to be 80 at that point in my life, at the pace that I was on, I would watch 36,000 hours 
of football. So I pulled the plug out. And when I was about to go to the monastery and Sarah was questioning about, about it, I'm like, sweetie, I just freed up 36,000 hours of time for you and our family. I'm spending a little, little, little slither of it at the monastery. When you don't dilly-dally, when you eliminate, when you pull the plug out, it frees up time, man. You want to take two hours, you can take two hours. You could. I mean, I could write a, a, a pie chart. I could take a very simple pie chart of 24 hours in a day. And, 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 and in the very, and I do this, I take three hours a day for myself pretty much every day. And it's cumulative. Is that where you put your running and things like that? Yeah, it's running. It could be anything, it, but it's, it could be running, sitting in a sauna, reading the paper, doing nothing, going for a walk. And it's cumulative, 30 minutes here, 20 here. But when I'm in my time, I'm not feeling guilty that I'm not with my wife or my kids or at work. And when I'm at work, I'm not feeling guilty that I'm not with my wife or kids. And when with my kids and my wife, I'm not guilty that I'm not. I'm very aware when I'm in those, when I'm living in those buckets because I don't want to resent my wife or my boss or anyone for taking away things that I like to do in my three hours. Like if I couldn't run, I love to run because my wife said, you got to do this and go over here. But I would resent her. I'm like, you can't dictate like that's my time. You know, mm -hmm. like it's the only thing I have. So that, that pie chart, three hours are for me, seven is for sleep. Sometimes I need six. I could be way out of balance on sleep if I'm launching a new book or company or whatever, maybe that's three, but generally I need six or seven hours, three for myself. The average American works a 40 hour work week, eight hours a day. That still leaves six hours for your Instagram, for your commuting, for your meals or family or whatever. My point is it's a long time, 24 hours, man. It's a long time time. It's just, how do you spend it? You know? And it's still respecting it, respecting that time. Yeah. Like each hour. So, so it's a couple of things I wanted to, I want to just check my notes, make sure I'm hitting, hitting everything. But one thing I was curious about, you mentioned in the beginning of this book, how with living with a seal, you pitched it also as a, you and seal pitched it as a TV show. So you pitched it to one channel, it didn't work out. You pitched it another in CBS, I think the yeah. meeting went well. Oh, oh, Seal kind of blew it the first two meetings, and then you calmed them down and you pitched it to CBS. They liked it, and it didn't work out. It seemed to me when you were just describing that story, that's one case where you're not going to where it's least crowded. Like everyone's pitching a show to the three major networks, and then Netflix and whatever. Um, it seemed as if you want to branch out, kind of the media, media empire aspect of this type of storytelling seems like there's probably alternatives to television. Definitely. And that's a good example of me going against my intuition mm -hmm. and not being in tune with my gut. You're right. And I, I knew now I look back on that and I said there's, and still there's so many different avenues and lanes and creative ways to get this out there if I want to um, than that traditional route. But that that lane, I thought, you know, at the time, and I still do, uh, it makes a great sitcom, a great show. It's fish it out of water. Sitcom. It's amazing. So, it, you know, that's the that's the eight hundred pound gorilla network TV or Netflix or whatever. So, if they were interested, that would be a good lane. But um, but again, it goes back to if my goal is to get that distributed, or you know, to a larger audience, because we got we didn't get ended up getting a deal with one of the major networks, the goal doesn't change, the path changes. And I'm still on that journey. That's not, I haven't written that off. 
uh, that's just, I had to, got to just take a different route and call an audible. But the goal is the same. Of bigger distribution or television? Uh, just, just getting it to as many, getting something that's creative, fun, positive to as many people as I can about, you know, with that, with that book and that format. And I, and I love the format so much. Like you must, I'm sure, uh, and your, your agents here, I'm sure you must be thinking of, uh, you know, the next 10 different things you could kind of immerse yourself in, in this, you know, in this edge sort of way. Like what are some of the other topics that you're thinking of? I know you've spoken about it in other interviews. You know, I've been giving it a lot of thought and, and, and I think if you overthink it and plan it and it's not authentic, it, it, it won't work. But my passion is I've only eaten fruit until noon for 27 years. In commemoration of that, by the way, I had, I've only did fruit until noon today. <laughs> okay, perfect, so, perfect. We got something in common. I've been, I've been lately, after our last podcast, I did fruit, only fruit until noon for about two weeks and then I switched. <laughs> but I usually do uh, some protein for breakfast, but I did fruit until noon today. I'm going to see how long I could try it again. So, um, there was a book called Fit for Life that was written in the early, that changed my life. I read it. It was written in the late 80s. Um, but I love to live with Harvey Diamond who wrote that book and kind of remix Fit for Life. So um, it's I could talk for hours about this topic, but uh, that's something I'm really passionate about. I feel like that's the book I was meant to write and because I live it. And so fruit till noon is something that I'm, I'm, and it wouldn't just be about eating fruit till noon and the benefits of it. It would be a much, it would be just be a different kind of wellness book, more on common sense than science. So what would be like another common sense thing? Uh, so the, the fruit for, till noon common sense, by the way, is just that fruit is digested in a different way than other food groups, requiring less energy, which gives you more energy in the afternoon you know, when you need it for, for the day. Well, let's go against common sense for a second. So we've been taught through multiple campaigns, millions, billions of dollars, breakfast is the most important meal. Have a big breakfast. You're taking a test today. My mom used to tell me, you're having a test, have a big breakfast. Well, we know that if you eat a big meal, digestion requires more energy than anything else. You have a big meal, you get tired. Thanksgiving, you want to go lay down. Who says, who says, Breakfast is the most important meal. Nabisco? I mean, who says who who says that? You know, um, Flintstones vitamins. Now you're hitting my hot you're hitting the hot button here. Another 1970s thing we grew up on. We grew up on them, but we didn't grow up on them with the same formula. We a lot of the foods that we grew up with, I grew up on Big League Chew. I grew up on Raisin Bran. There's a lot of things that I grew up on where the formulas have changed. We grew up on sugar, not aspartame. We grew up on regular sugar, not high fructose corn syrup. The formulas have changed because they become cheaper to make. But um, anyway, this is stuff that I want to talk about and, and expose on a, on a big way in this book. And these are topics that are really important to me. And I feel like if you don't have a cause at 50, as we get older, that's really important to you and you're not standing up for something that you think is wrong, uh, I think that's a miss. I think we all need something at, at that second and third chapter of our life that um, is meaningful, that will take a position on something that means something important to you and stand up for it. And, you know, um, I look at Flintstones, and I'll use your platform to talk about it. I look at Flintstones vitamins and on the packaging, 
it says that it's the number one, you can pull it up. It's the number one most number one recommended vitamin, kids' vitamin by pediatricians. Number one vitamin recommended by pediatricians. It says so on the packaging. So they must have surveyed thousands of pediatricians, I assume, and this was the number one vitamin of choice. If you look at the ingredients in Flintstones vitamins, let's separate the main ingredients, sugar, aspartame, et cetera. That, you know, five, I believe three to five of the current ingredients are banned in 10 nations. They're steamed so dangerous that they're banned in Norway and so all these countries in, in Europe. How in the world could a doctor in his right mind suggest to a little infant or a two-year-old that this is my, of all the amazing vitamins we have in this amazing country we live in, this is the vitamin I suggest you take. I'd like to see one doctor raise their hand and say, this is my choice. Of, of, it's on the packaging. I like Bear to put together a list so without knowing, like my my gut is, doesn't the FDA check their labeling and and confirm it? Like, isn't there a legal? Yeah, well, they would say in the doses that these are in the doses per vitamin that this is an, that this is esteemed safe or whatever. They say the same thing about tobacco. I mean, but you know, I, I don't know. I don't see. Would you give your kid a glass of aspartame or a glass of Yellow Lake, you know, six or Red Dye forty or whatever it is? You know, no. I mean, I, again, it goes back to common sense. And maybe if you take a, one of those pills, there's not enough. But if you're a two-year-old and you take two pills a day and you have them until you're 12, so you know, you've had 7,000 of these pills, don't you think maybe that would cause some issues? Mm. And does, some, does Norway know something that we don't know? It just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. So my point is I'm passionate about it. I'm pissed off. And you know, I think it's important to have a cause that you believe in. So- if I have a platform on any level, it could be 20 people, it could be 2 million, it doesn't matter. I want to be able to let people make their own opinion by presenting another side of it. Because for me, as, as when I was growing up, my parents saw number one recommended doctor by pediatricians and that was enough. But I don't believe that anymore. I've lost trust in that. I don't believe that. That's marketing. That's common sense over cap. That's capitalism over common sense to me, and um, I think it's important to talk about it. So, I mean, do you think that'll happen? That book, one thousand percent. I already started it. One thousand percent. It's the book I was meant to write. Hmm. All right. Well, so that'll be the the next uh, the next book on this podcast series of uh, of living with seal, living with the monks, and then what's this one's? What do you think this one will be called? Fruit till noon. Fruit till I might noon. get out of the living with series. We'll see. <laughs> We're not. What about living with fruit? Uh, if you would have me as a guest, James, you're out of the Airbnbs now. We could maybe it could be, you know, living with altitude. <laughs> that would be that would be an interesting experience. <laughs> um, we both could eat fruit till noon. You could do it for a day. We could, you know, there's a lot of this. There's stuff in common, man. I think you could. We could learn a lot from each other. Yeah, I would. I, I would try. I, in one interview, you said you wanted to learn uh, chess. I could show you chess. So that would be uh, cool. Um, and have our breakdancing background yeah. from, from the past. Um, uh, you know what? I There was one quote in the book that I really liked. If you're present in everything you do, it's like receiving a present. So that was a great quote. And I think that was in the dishes example as well. Yes. Yes. And it's true. I mean, I struggle with being present and I still struggle with it. Um, 
but I'm a, I'm more aware of it now. And the moments that I am present, especially with my family, uh, they just are so much more meaningful and memorable. So again, you try to, you're not always going to be there. I'm on my phone a lot still, but uh, but I'm aware of it. And again, as I re as I reverse engineer the rest of my life, it's something that I, I you know I got to work on and 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 try to get better at. Well, I have a feeling we could probably talk for like 20 straight hours about all these uh, different things. I thought the book was great. I thought Living with Seal was great. So much stuff I learned. The great thing about having a podcast is I get to like read the book and then I would never just call you up and ask you like two hours worth of questions about the book, but I could get you to come on the podcast and we could talk for two hours about the book. So it's great for me. So thanks once again for coming on the no, podcast. Listen, it's always I feel such a fun time. I feel so lucky that you uh, had me back. So I'm, I'm, I appreciate. It. I love what you're doing, and uh, hopefully we can do it again over, you know, over fruit talking about fruit. Yeah, I would love to do it. We'll, we'll, we'll fill this table with all sorts of fruit. I seriously, <laughs> I seriously, I had a fruit salad, my at Mason Kaiser on 76 and Broadway, and. My my girlfriend, they serve the food, and my girlfriend's like, "What? We didn't order that." And I'm like, "No, no, I ordered that the fruit salad." <laughs> and and everybody, like the waiter, my girl, everyone's like, "Oh, you're doing something new." And I'm like, "Yeah, why not? I can order fruit once in a while." I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, cool. Jesse. Thank thanks you, for coming Jesus. on the podcast. Thank you so much. Cool. That was fun. Mm-hmm.